Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians 1, verses 12 through 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by death or by life. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rachel Denhollander is one of the most courageous young women I've ever met. Her heart-wrenching story about her own abuse as a child in church, and even much more so as a gymnast by her gymnastics doctor, Larry Nasser, is captured in a compelling and heart-wrenching book that she wrote entitled, What is a Girl Worth? Rachel's courageous tenacity, as we know, was instrumental in the conviction and imprisonment of Larry Nasser, But what is often overlooked about her story that is now more well known is her own personal struggle of faith as she grappled so deeply with the evil and injustice of her great suffering. And as a law student, Rachel wrote these words very transparently about her own journey of faith. She writes, I also wrestled deeply with my faith over and over again. I was sitting on our couch, sunlight pouring in through the large picture window 
that graced the front of our living room. Does God care? And if he does, why didn't he do something for me? Rachel continues on, as I was wrestling with these questions, my mind drifted back to what had happened to me when I was seven. While Rachel deeply wrestled with her faith, the good news of her story is she finds her way back to a deeper faith, to experience the healing love of God. And yes, Rachel returns to joy. And she puts it this way, love is the motivation that will give joy and peace. Suffering, particularly the most unjust kind of suffering, is perhaps our greatest challenge to faith, our greatest barrier to experience the joy our hearts so deeply long for. And if we are transparent and honest, life, no matter where we are in our journey, inevitably brings to us a great deal of suffering. Yes, in many different ways. And yes, some really bad things happen to some really good people. You may be one of those. You may have had very bad things happen to you, and you are suffering greatly from what someone has done to you in the past. Or maybe past choices you have made have hurt others, and they continue to haunt you with guilt and regret. Or perhaps there are very negative circumstances you are facing, injustices you are encountering, deep disappointments in life you are feeling. And perhaps you are in a crushing crucible of some intense suffering right now. It may be an emotional struggle, a physical affliction, a mental illness. Or maybe you are experiencing that raw, agonizing hurt in a relationship that means so much to you, but has gone so far south. Now, like Rachel Denhollander, you wrestle with your faith. You struggle. Why God seems to allow this. Why he is absent for you. And in your quiet desperation, you grasp, as I grasp, to find joy. And joy sometimes is painfully elusive. Now, I know compared to some, I have not suffered a great deal in my life. Yes, I've had my moments, but I can't begin to imagine some of the heartache and suffering you may have faced or you are facing now in life. Because in a very broken world, in the midst of very broken relationships, that deep joy you long for seems pretty much, well, dead and gone. And at soul level, in those quiet moments, only sadness and cynicism greet you. But can joy be found in the midst of your suffering, in my suffering, in the midst of any suffering? Now, I would like to address this very difficult question today. And let me just say, maybe your guard is up. Let me say right up front, I'm not going to offer some syrupy or simple-sounding platitudes. But I want to express with a hopeful realism, a hopefulness, that I believe our text this morning, written over 2,000 years ago, offers you and me a hopeful answer. And that is that there is joy available to you that even suffering can't kill. 
Now, if you brought a Bible or you have a Bible with you, wherever you are, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 in the New Testament. Now, if you were a part of our conversation last week, we began our message series and we have entitled the series, Return to Joy. As a church family, we are exploring together Paul's very, as we said, upbeat letter to the first century church at Philippi, Greece. Now, what is important for us to understand is that Paul is imprisoned unjustly by an oppressive, ruthless, and idolatrous Roman government. Yet in that context, as we will see and increasingly see through this letter, Paul experiences these microbursts of joy in the midst of the most agonizing crucible of suffering. So the question for the thoughtful reader is, how was that possible? So here in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, we are given some remarkable and transforming insight into Paul's joy. In Paul's inspired words, we discover three characteristics of a joy that even suffering can't kill. Now, let me frame those characteristics as we walk through this text, and perhaps that will help us keep track of where Paul goes. The first characteristic we're going to look at is there is a joy that knows God is always at work. A joy that knows God is always at work. Secondly, there is a joy that keeps the long view in mind, that keeps the long view in mind. And then third, where Paul goes in this text, there is a joy that pursues sticky faith. So let's begin. The first characteristic of a joy that simply suffering cannot kill, Paul models and communicates, is found in verses 12 through 14. And that's the joy that knows that God is always at work in any context. Now here's what Paul says, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, against the backdrop, and it's a dark one, of a Roman prison, the Apostle Paul looks through his difficult and suffering circumstances through the lens, a joyful lens, of God's sovereignty. And he wants the followers of Jesus he is writing to in Philippi to do the very same thing in their own context. Paul wants these followers of Jesus, these apprentices of Jesus, to realize that joy is not only experienced when someone is glad to be with us, it is also experienced when we see our lives and circumstances through the hopeful, joy-filled lens of a sovereign God who is absolutely in charge. Now, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, chapter 16, we read the remarkable story, and if you've not read it, I'd encourage you to do that as a backdrop to our study of how this church at Philippi, Greece, got started by the Apostle Paul. And it makes me wonder what it must have been like for the recipients of this letter to hear Paul's words. For example, we know from Acts 16 that one of the converts to Christ was a very influential businesswoman named Lydia, uh, who no doubtedly financially supported Paul. 
as he went about his mission. And here she is, hearing Paul's joyful words of gospel mission advancement, even while he's in prison. How that must have encouraged her. But another convert that is described in Acts 16 by Paul is stunning. A jailer, yes, a Philippian jailer who converts to Christ and his entire family followed Jesus. Now imagine they are sitting listening to this letter being read. They hear Paul's words about joy in the midst of prison. Now this jail, jailer <laughs> knew a lot about jails, right? And I am convinced that he had thought that a prison is the last place on earth where joy would emerge. I doubt if he ever imagined that a place like prison could be a place of great joy. What must he have been thinking as Paul wrote? He must have realized that the gospel of the kingdom was a kingdom of joy. And Jesus was bringing this into the world in a way he never imagined. And as Paul had said to him, had said earlier, there is a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit when he wrote to the church at Rome, Romans 14, 17. Clearly, in listening to this letter, they were experiencing this kingdom, and Paul was too. A kingdom of joy and righteousness and peace. Now, to encourage the first century apprentice of Jesus, Paul will now share a glimpse of how God is at work in advancing Jesus' kingdom mission in the world. Now, the Roman officials can imprison Paul, can't they? But they cannot imprison the good news of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. And Paul will note this very specifically. It's like he's communicating that the guards around him and the guards in the prison that he's a part of, the gospel is spreading like wildfire as they embrace it. And Paul goes out of his way to point that because of his unjust imprisonment, other believers around him in this proximity are now more bold to share the good news of Christ. Now, Paul is not overlooking or glossing over the brutal circumstances of his imprisonment. They are really, really hard. Each morning, Paul awakes in prison. He has no idea how long a beer be there or what the outcome will be. It is not surprising that Paul will explicitly mention in these verses three times in verses 12 through 18 about his imprisonment. But there is something surprising lurking in the text we may miss. And that is Paul's greatest suffering is not coming from inside the prison. It's coming from outside the prison. You say, what do you mean, Tom? Well, his greatest pain is not oozing from his shackled feet, but from his wounded heart. And we hear this in this text in verses 15 through 18. Paul shares, perhaps in the most transparent way of all his letters, about his deep hurt from another source. It is other converts to Christ, other spiritual leaders who are undermining him and offering barbs of stinging criticism about him and his leadership that have been very wounding to Paul. You will notice in the text that Paul does not call them by name, but he does reveal their heart-breaking and heart-wounding motivations. Clearly, the text says, motivations of envy, yes, and competitive rivalry. Now, Paul is very transparent. He's pointing to an inconvenient truth. And isn't this a truth? If you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, it's often fellow Christians that can hurt us deeply. They can put us back on our heels. They can make us deeply question, perhaps like nothing else, our faith. And they are one of the greatest robbers of joy in our life. 
I remember not too long ago, tears filling my eyes when I received a text that was sent to me by accident. Maybe you've had that experience. It was from another Christian I knew that was very critical of me, very unkind in his words, and about my leadership and my life. Now, clearly, this person never intended me to see the text, but I did. And it was deeply wounding to me. Just thinking about it almost brings me to tears. And I am sure you have experienced a wounding word or an action, maybe by an accidental text, but by another Christian. And I think even Paul does not tell us more here, does it? We have to fill in the blanks of how devastating he must have felt. While Paul is transparent about his hurt, what I'm encouraged by is he does not wallow in self-pity, does he? Instead, he knows that even if the heart motives of others who claim to be Christians or are Christians are not what they should be, and fellow Christians always do not speak as they should speak or behave as they should live or be, the good news of Jesus' gospel is proclaimed, and he rejoices. In fact, at the end of verse 18, he says, yes, I will rejoice. And the point is, the bars of prison, the wounding words of others cannot imprison Paul's joy. Why? Because even in the midst of a most difficult circumstance and the most painful relationships, Paul knows a sovereign God is at work and he is accomplishing his good purposes. Paul knows, and he wants the Philippian Christians to know, who are listening to his letter being read, to know that his suffering and their suffering is not senseless. It is purposeful. That suffering has a purpose. Now, 20th century Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl wrote one of the most brilliant books of the 20th century, and I think one of the most important ones, Man's Search for Meaning. Frankel believed that as humans, we are meaning-seeking creatures. For Frankel, meaning and joy were inextricably linked here. And Frankel said we find meaning or joy in three main ways. The relationships we have, that's primary. The work we do, but also, yes, the suffering we encounter. Frankel, of course, knew this firsthand as a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp. And for Frankel, the key to enduring suffering is to find joy in life by leaning into purpose, knowing that your life really matters, that your life is about something important, what your life is really for. Now, Frankel, in his brilliant book, points to Friedrich Nietzsche, a philosopher, a German philosopher, in his words. And these are the words that capture Frankel's thinking, quoting Nietzsche. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And then he says, if you understand your why, you can endure almost any how. Now, here in this letter to the Philippians, it is very clear in Paul's introduction that Paul clearly knows the big why. He knows his life purpose and that a sovereign God will accomplish that purpose in God's perfect timing and in his life. And yes, in the world. Paul experiences a joy that knows God is always at work in his life and in the world, even if he cannot see it clearly. And the question for us is, how about you? How about me? 
Do you, do I, have a clear understanding of the big why of our life? Why we get out of bed in the morning and why it matters. See, if we do not have clarity there, if our why is attached to uh, momentary pleasures, intoxicating power, our physical beauty, material comforts, then the suffering that inevitably comes into our lives and shatters this, one way or another, destroys remnants of the joy we long for and the joy we strive to find. See, there is a joy, a joy even suffering can't kill. And that floods into our lives when God, the one we love and serve, the one we know ultimately becomes primary. And we know that God is at work and we trust God is in charge of our lives. Now, I am convinced of something and I'd like you to think about this, but I think this is true. I'm convinced one of Paul's monikers of joy around his life is found in Romans 8, verse 28. And I want to encourage you as a point of application, if you have not already done so, to memorize this verse, to meditate on it, to weave it into the very fabric of your home life, your marriage, your children, your Monday worlds of home, school, and at work. And this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things work to work together for good to those who love him. Notice the primacy of relationship and to those who are called according to his purpose. When we hide that truth in our hearts and in our minds, joy will become a part of us. So the first characteristic of joy that suffering can't kill Paul reminds us, is a joy that knows God is always at work. But the second characteristic he goes to is a joy that keeps the long view in mind. Now notice, as the text progresses here, three words can summarize Paul's transparent sharing of his heart in verses 19 through 26. And that is an eternal perspective. Now, let's think for a moment about Paul's difficult and rugged journey of faith. At an early age, Paul was groomed to be a devout Jewish Pharisee. His whole life was centered around conformity and religious rules and a religious order. He had incredible religious zeal, so much that the New Testament tells us Paul terrorized the early church, including murder. But then one day, on a dusty road to Damascus, Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus. And everything, everything in Paul's life was turned upside down, inside out. In the story of Paul's encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, we find the book of Acts telling us there was a man named Ananias. He's commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to come to Paul's aid. And Jesus says something to Ananias about the implications of Paul's calling to preach to the gospel that we must not miss here because it undergirds Paul's narrative and this text. Jesus says, and it's quoted in Acts 9.16, For I will show him, that's Paul, how much he must, what? Suffer for the sake of my name. And suffer Paul did. Even to the point of a strong historical tradition that tells us that Paul was martyred for his faith in Rome. From the time of Paul's conversion to his execution, Paul's journey of faith included many things. Let me just give you a sample. Imprisonment, more than once. Stonings, 
beatings, lashings, hunger, illness, and shipwreck, and I could go on. Yet Paul's faith did not waver, not a bit, nor was his joy ever imprisoned or shipwrecked. So how is that possible? Paul had an infinite horizon in sight, and in his heart he felt the breezes of eternity blowing. Look at me in verses 19 to 21. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, meaning imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then Paul says something that is absolutely incredible. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul, though presently imprisoned, sees his life, his apprenticeship with Christ, as the ultimate win-win. And he describes it here in the text. Knowing King Jesus now, and living for him fully now, is the greatest life imaginable. But for Paul, even more awesome, even more unimaginable, is to die and be with Jesus forever. Paul experiences a joy that only comes into our lives when it is understood in the context of a deepening intimacy with King Jesus placed against an infinite horizon. Paul had eternity in view, and he could only imagine what lay ahead of him. I love Bart Miller's best-selling song from Mercy Me, I Can Only Imagine. I think this captures Paul's joyful longing in this text. Let me just give you a couple of the words that are familiar to many of us, but I can only imagine what it'll be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? I can only imagine. This is what I think Paul is saying. And writing to the church at Corinth, Paul gives us more insight regarding the importance of keeping the long view in front of us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, Paul says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And you go, knowing Paul's journey. Light, momentary affliction? Wow, that's not how I would describe it. That's Paul's suffering? How could he say that? You know, is this denial? Is this sort of a mystical, pantheistic idea of detaching himself from the world? Not at all. Paul is seeing reality clearly, and he's being very honest. He is grasping reality, seeing his life in the world through the lens of a sovereign God and eternal perspective. In the movie Shadowlands, which is one of my favorite movies about C.S. Lewis, his life, there is this unforgettable scene. Lewis and his adopted son sit before the wardrobe that inspired the Chronicles of Nardi in the Attic, and they cry their eyes out with grief because of the loss of C.S. Lewis's wife and his son's mom. And there's this intense grief, and finally Lewis says this. He says, the pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. Lewis also reminds us in his writings 
Those who are most heavenly minded actually do the most earthly good. And this reflects Paul here in the text. Do you see it? As Paul imagines with anticipation what lies ahead for him, there is a tension. There is a tug of war. He, he feels between the now and the then, and it's built into the text in verses 22 through 26. You can feel, if you look at this, the joyful heart of Paul. But his heart is also wrestling. There's this tug of war between his love for the Philippian Christians and his longing to be with them, but also his longing to be with Jesus more fully in eternity. Paul communicates to the Philippian church that he has a faith inclination, that's what I'd call it, that he will, yes, be able to come and see them again. And Paul very transparently expresses his deep desire to spend more time with them, to encourage them in community for greater spiritual formation and to experience greater joy with them. And Paul is not so heavenly minded. He is no earthly good, so to speak. On the other hand, he's not so future focused that he's not filled with joy and hope, fully living in the moment with them in the present. Clearly, the bright rays of resurrection joy are shining a hopeful light in Paul's darkened prison cell. In the midst of so many responsibilities of work and family, this is an important message for us. How are you, how am I, cultivating an eternal perspective in our daily life? How are, for example, the words of amazing grace moving from mind to heart? Amazing Grace, the great hymn, has this picture, right? One of the lines is, When we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. One of the ways we cultivate an eternal perspective, the long view, and keep it in front of us in the midst of the myopia of daily life and all that's responsible now, is to attend regularly corporate worship. Participating in corporate worship is one of the best ways to remind ourselves of the long view that we live in light of eternity. There is a joy. There is a joy that you and I can experience that is longer than just 70 or 80 years. A joy that we can experience every day in any circumstance. It is a joy that suffering can't kill. The first characteristic that Paul gives us of this joy is that there is a joy that emerges in our lives when we know that God is always at work. Secondly, a joy that keeps the long view in mind, but notice where Paul goes. It is the third characteristic, and it's a joy that pursues sticky faith. Last week, we examined Paul's introductory words, the very first part, and we were reminded that joy, properly understood, has a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. That is, both of God being glad to be with us as well as others being glad to be with us. A joy that suffering can't kill is deeply embedded in our local church community. Christ designed his church, his local church, to be a fountain of joy. A joy where others are glad to be with us and a joy that we know they will not walk out on us. We might call this sticky faith. And this is what I think Paul describes for the first century followers of Jesus who have embraced the gospel in verses 27 to 28. Let me read those. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is saying 
simply, profoundly, emphatically stick close together. The wording in the original language of the Greek text that's translated into English, you see these phrases, stand firm, stand side by side, you see that, is often used in other Greek literature to describe a military context of soldiers standing next to each other in battle, courageously facing battle. And this is not accidental. Paul knows that a great spiritual battle is occurring. And if war means one thing, it means suffering. They go together. And Paul urges them not to be divided, but to stick close together, notice, for the faith of the gospel. Gospel faith is sticky faith. And it sticks together in sticky local church community. We don't experience the joy our hearts long for alone. We were never designed to do that. Nor were we ever designed to face suffering and difficulty alone, but to endure trials and heartaches and all that in the context and presence and encouragement and strength of others. So let's pursue together a more sticky faith. This past week, uh, Liz and I had the joy-filled fun of spending an evening with some other couples and friends from Christ community that we have gotten to know better over the years. We have shared highs and lows together. And I have to say the richness of these relationships are valued beyond measure. Every time we're together, our joy is multiplied. And we drove home from that time, both Liz and me, and our hearts were filled with joy. Let's pursue a more sticky faith. The global COVID-19 pandemic has driven home to all of us that isolation is perilous to us. Perilous. And we have discovered in new ways that aloneness is joylessness. And as we are comfortable, let's return to our in-person Sunday morning worship experience. Let's also seek out a small group to be a part of. Now, if you're not in a community group or a small group, may I encourage you to take the next step. We not only grow spiritually together, we are more joy-filled together. Now, next week, in our message, we are going to focus more deeply on our faith community. But let me start the conversation. Three things I want to remind you. First, be intentional. Take a step toward others. Secondly, be transparent. Be intentional. Be transparent with others. Others who are safe. And be safe for others yourself. Third, be available to how God wants you to connect to others. And be eager in that to get to know each other and to bear each other's burdens and to share each other's joys. We were never meant to suffer alone or to experience the fullness of joy alone. So let's embrace a more sticky faith with each other in spiritual community. Joy awaits us there. Let's return to joy. Now, last Sunday, we celebrated the hope and joy of the empty tomb. And I have to say, it was such a glorious time. And I am reminded that we heard in the message last week that Luke ends his gospel mentioning that the disciples, the group, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, resurrection joy. Resurrection joy, knowing God was at work in the world, keeping a long view in mind and encouraging each other to sticky faith. An empty tomb fuels a joy even suffering cannot kill.